This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Plenty of Carp, A Fishing Guide for Dating Singles. And the author is Cynthia Covell. And Cindy joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Cindy. Hello. Hello, Steve. How are you? Well, this is going to be a great discussion about fishing, and we're talking about fishing for the big one. <laughs> we're talking about just that right companion, and that is sometimes a lot of fishing, isn't it? Yes, it is, especially if you're trying to find the big one when most waters are full of littler fish. Well, you say this about your book, my one and only husband died in 2004. The first two years after his death were emotionally crippling, and it wasn't until year three that I could actually entertain the thought of dating another man. After a few years of using online dating with trying to find Mr. Right and only finding Mr. What I Don't Want, I decided to share these experiences using the short story and poem genre. The intent of the book is to help others experience with humor the online dating scene. This is a bold kind of road to follow, isn't it? I mean, most people wouldn't say, well, I need to write a book. Here I am single now, and I don't know what to do, and I'm trying to use technology. Uh, what was the motivation? I've always wanted to write a book. I, the first time I wanted to write a book was, uh, sadly enough, during the assassination of President Kennedy. I was so moved by the experience, I just felt that I had something to share. And it's the same with this book, uh, but it's, of course, a different situation here. But I've always had that bug inside of me to produce a book. I'm an educator. Uh, I love getting, my, getting into the muck of you know, papers all over the place and studying something and doing research. So, yeah, it, it, was a, it is a bold one. In fact, when I started putting things out there and having my friends read them, 90% um, of the reaction, or even close, I'll even go out there and say 95, were, and there were women from ages 19 all the way up to 70, they were just cracking up because it really touched a funny bone. And then there are the other part that are, like you said, oh, my gosh, how could you put this out here? I mean, it has some sexual connotations in it. People are going to read this. I go, well, yeah, well, you're only on the planet for a very short period of time. In 10 years, if I'm not here, who's going to even know or make that connection? And I've learned you have to take a risk. If you really believe in something that you want to share, regardless, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. So I felt this book was meant to be. So here you are, active on online dating services, and you're finding only carp. Now, define carp. Carp for me, after dating, when I first started dating, you know, three years after my husband passed away, 
the dating scene is very different as you get older, okay, because you have people who have already made a history. So there are, there are men who have multiple wives, multiple children, have lost all their money, have money, don't want to share their money, make you pay the bill for like a $10 salad. There just <laughs> is it's a different fishing pond than when you're 20 and trying to make things up as you go along. You haven't had your family. You don't have that much history. So the carp is a term I use because of having that much history. It takes a carp a long time to get that big, but once it gets big, it's it's a pretty big fish. So that's what is they just have baggage. And I have baggage too. I, I don't think I have, but I'm sure I do. <laughs> and it's just that we have had so many experiences as a person fishing, you have to decide what part of this can I accept? What part of this can I not accept? if you're going into this looking for someone as a relationship. So I, if someone has multiple wives, had multiple wives, multiple children, that's something I have to deal with because it's coming from his side. So that's why I call them CARP. It's what you have on the other side as far as their baggage. Tell us about the format for the CARP short stories. Kind of give us that, uh, you know, in general, how they're formatted. Okay. Um, I'm a person, a couple of things here. I love other people's wisdom. I learned that from a professor that I had when I was working on my grad work, that when you use someone else's wisdom or a quote, that really raises the bar with your wisdom because you're not just relying on your words, you're actually entertaining the thoughts of other people. And I've just been a fan of quotes since I heard him say that. So the, the format is I enter with a quote from some famous person. Some of them are from Shakespeare. Some of them are from uh, uh, Mae West. Uh, it's just a gamut, Meryl Streep. And that quote weaves through the story. So first of all, I start out with a quote, and then I have um, an introductory little paragraph from the carp. And the introductory paragraph is resembles what they put online as their introduction, like the lure. So they might say something like, I'm good looking, I like to go out to dinner, I like to hold hands. Most of the time the fellows put in some really, really romantic things. You know, I like beach walks and so on. So I introduce them with a little short story. Then that folds into the novella, which is the short story. And then at the end, I have an epilogue that ties in what I did with that particular carp, or sometimes it is a fish. And then I end up with another quote. So Jack Nicholson, back in 1970, 1971, made a movie called Five Easy Pieces. I call this my six easy pieces. So it's a quote, and then it opens up with a little bio, the novella, the epilogue, and um, the other quote. And also there's a preface in there. So it does end up being six pieces of stuff. And Cindy Lucy, as you call yourself in this, uh, has some wisdom and advice to share, just like out of a column in a newspaper. Yes, I liken into that. In fact, when I started thinking about a newspaper column like Sex in the City with Carrie Bradshaw and how she would write these articles, I mean, I could see that. I've learned first you have to feel something, then you have to see it, then you have to do it. Whether it was my writing or my teaching, uh, anything I have to have a feeling 
see it do it and i also thought of like frazier you know like where you'd have a talk in radio where girls would call in or even guys for that matter i talk to men all the time about this and they share they asked me if i would do a book from their side of the fishing pond <laughs> i had a lot of they yeah seriously i have men who say can you write will you interview me i had one guy chasing me around begging to be a carp so he could be in my book <laughs> so um i do have and this is this is knowing yourself after a long time of being on the face of the earth i know as a teacher which I have done my entire life going through school and then being in school since uh, I graduated from uh, undergrad school and I teach now at the university level, teachers have to have uh, an ability to connect. So for me to connect is I have to get my kids energized, I have to do something fun with them, uh, and it's called the anticipatory set. And teachers, true teachers, like Teacher Man, which was Frank McCourt, we are entertainers. When you think about it, we have to be on show six, seven hours a day. Okay? That's for sure. So, you you're, take the stage every day. Yes, we do. We take the stage. It's showtime. Right. So when you get up and no matter what you feel like, you have to be positive, perky, cup half full, or the glass has to be half full. And you have to be up there. And you know what? When you have that mindset, it's very easy to be there. I never had a problem. So you have to be up there and you have to be entertaining. So this is a real easy fit for me. Uh, I see life as a progression of steps of where you are today because of what you did yesterday. So today I'm able to write and connect with people because of my past experiences, not only with my life, but also with my teaching. So it's very a very easy fit for me to think about talking to people. I don't have a problem with that, whether it's on a radio. Um, I've done the TV spot with a local TV station here. And again, it's just manifested through the fact that I've been in front of people my entire life. So it's what I know. Online dating or dating in general is a journey. We must remember that. It is a journey because you may not find someone the first time. Really, if you're going about it with the intent of looking for someone specifically, and I don't think you should settle. Just because you show up for dinner doesn't mean you have to go home with, with the dessert because that can lead to all kinds of problems. You know, how do you get them out of the house after 15 minutes? But um, the whole thing is, is a journey because if you are looking for someone, you have to decide as a person what are your negotiables and what are your non-negotiables. My first non-negotiable was my two grown sons. They are, I not only lost my husband, I lost the father of my two sons. And I promised myself and I promised my husband I would never bring someone in front of them unless I knew for sure it was someone I definitely had feelings for and it was the same for him. After seven years, my, my sons have never seen me with another man. I have not found anyone that I can negotiate with for them because of the loss of their father. That may sound like I have couples who say to me, well, don't you think that's kind of selfish that you're denying your own happiness because you place your sons in such high esteem? I said, no. It's, it's something that I said to myself, and I know my husband would expect this of me, that, you know, you have feelings for your sons too. So it's not just a party every day and show, come up and say, okay, look what I brought home today and it wasn't the cat. That kind of a thing. It has to be something that, because of my relationship with my sons, 
I just can't compromise. I just can't. And it's just how I'm built. I just can't do it. So one thing I do do, though, is when I am going out on a date, I always call them. Well, we talk every day anyway. And I always tell them what I'm doing, where I'm going, and I'm only my cell phone away. And so that's what it is for me. So it is a journey. If you are looking for someone who is going to be a fit, not only for yourself, because I don't want to create any animosity with my sons. That's, that's just not going to happen. Someone, so you keep going through the journey, going through the journey, going through the journey, fishing, fishing, fishing. Does this person fit for me? Well, then what is it about this person that is actually going to capture my sons? Because this guy is going to have a tough act to follow. <laughs> right, right. A lot of comparison, a lot of comparison all the time. Uh-huh. Right, right, a lot of scrutiny all the time. You know, when you go fishing, and I know this from being a fisherman, but, you know, especially uh, going out and coming back with nothing. And I'm still okay, though. That's what you're trying to emphasize, aren't you? You may go yes. fishing, but that doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. You just didn't catch any fish. That's right. Lots of fishermen, like you mentioned, go out all day long, come back with absolutely nothing. And you know something that I learned that that's all right. I did feel bad about that in the beginning because I didn't know what was wrong with me because I thought, well, I'm a perky little girl. Well, maybe someone doesn't want perky. I've learned that, too. Sometimes (laughs) men sit across from me, and I can just tell that they're uncomfortable because I'm a mile a minute. And if someone thinks that they have to keep up with me, then they're afraid of me also. They're intimidated or they don't want any part of it. In fact, I've had fellows introduce themselves to me. Hi, I'm whomever and I don't run. And I say, I didn't ask you to run. It's what (laughs) I do. It says in my biography, you know, what do you do? I didn't ask you to do that. But that's, they feel threatened that um, they have to keep up. And if a person is really, really secure in themselves, they should understand that what they bring to their, whether it's running, golf, or whatever it is that they do, that's them because everyone is a separate being. And you have to love that separate being in order to offer yourself to someone else. So it is the fact that I'm all right. You don't like to run. That's okay. I don't like to play golf, but I can meet you in the clubhouse for happy hour. Okay, that's what it's all about. And you know what? There are a lot of people who are still single. For example, Jennifer Aniston. She's finally found someone. She's been single since Brad Pitt. And I think about all these people who are really single, and they're fine. Look at Oprah. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Never married Stedman, and she's more than fine. So single is okay. Single is okay. Just in a little bit of time we have left, talk about your poetry. Oh, my poetry. Um, I love to write poetry, and with poetry for me, instead of writing a short story, it's something that happened to me very quickly, and I just put it down into words. The very first poem in the book is Airplanes and Airports, and it talks about a man who I was coming back from Seattle from visiting my son, and my daughter-in-law was with me also, and my other son, and my grandson, and my daughter-in-law looks at me with those eyes and I knew oh no there's someone behind me that wants to talk to me and here I'm in the airport so she's smiling so I turn around and here's this wonderful looking tall man with Adidas logo wear and he was going to London and he just wanted to chat with me and it was just priceless it was just a priceless situation it was very short we were in line going through security and then we ended up at the same two gates across from each other and it was just a moment 
So my poetry comes to me very quick. It's something that happens. It's very spontaneous. I actually, after that incident, when I got on the plane, I actually pounded out that poem probably within just a couple of minutes. It's just something that just sparked it. And then there are other poems that I have in there that came from instances where I just could not get enough of a man to write a full short story. I could have, but the the meaning of whatever happened, the poetry said it better. So it has to do with the fit. The title of the book, Plenty of Carp, A Fishing Guide for Dating Singles. And the author is Cynthia Covell. Cindy, tell us how to get your book. Well, there's a number of ways. You can go on Amazon.com. You can go to BarnesandNoble.com. You can go to my publisher, which is iUniverse.com. You can get it in hard, soft, and Kindle versions. And uh, that's, those are the three highest places to go um, as far as online services. Thank you, Cindy. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle, and sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Donna is a charismatic, market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Guardians of the Gate, a novel, and the author is Vincent N. Perillo, and Vince joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Vince. Hello. Good to have you with us. Uh, This story, based on history, based on fact, much of it uh, historically correct, but Adding in some fictional characters, some uh, intrigue, a love affair, just makes history 
that's much sweeter as uh, we were talking about before we did this interview did doesn't it Yes, I think so. I think uh, history can be fascinating to quite a few people, but others might find it just dry and perhaps not even relevant. So I thought I would spice up the real story of Ellis Island um, with a fictionalized uh, romance that actually involves people who are composites of others who worked at Ellis Island. But uh, um, as I said to you earlier, it's, it's the concept of Mary Poppins about a spoonful of sugar might help the medicine go down. And I think people uh, who have been reading the book telling me I, I, I learned a lot while I was enjoying the story. And I think that was go. the goal. Yeah, that's, the goal. A, that's the perfect, well, you've, you've accomplished what you set out to do with that kind of a response. Let me read what you've written just to set the overall stage for everyone this novel reveals fascinating but little-known facts about dramatic events at Ellis Island in the 1890s and early 1900s and tells of the experiences of arriving immigrants and tells of the experiences of arriving immigrants and of the doctors, nurses, and government officials who work there. Beneath the everyday happenings and challenges lie the conflicts between personal facades and private desires as a compelling love story unfolds. Well, that was uh, very well written. That just kind of says everything. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. It's a little hard sometimes to reduce it to a few sentences. Well, of course. The whole book is about, I gave it a go. (laughs) So Dr. Matt Stafford, he's this fictional character based on a composite of folks who work there. That's right. So he, being this uh, idealistic doctor, wants to go help. Yeah, he's a, he's a very successful surgeon at Presbyterian Hospital, but there's an inner restlessness that he can't quite define. And he thought a, a, a temporary assignment where he would be seeing this wide variety of people from many different lands with interesting sicknesses and diseases as well uh, would, would make him a better doctor, number one, and also satisfy this, this curiosity he had to know more about others. So he enters both the, eth- the ethnic diversity passing through the island, and he also finds himself, as you put it, irresistibly drawn toward this nurse, Nicole Devereaux. That's right. And yes. he's married, at, right? He's married. Yes, he is. He's married at the time. And, and um, he's, he's, he's the kind of person who uh, isn't looking for uh, another woman. He's, he's, uh, he's loyal and in love with his wife. Uh, but somehow this, this new woman comes into his life, and he's attracted to her. He has thoughts about her. He is suffering an inner conflict. He's, he's upset with himself for thinking about her and, and dreaming various fantasies about being with her. And so he's fighting his desires on the one hand with his feelings of love and loyalty to his wife. Now, your background is sociology. Tell us a little bit about yourself and some of your uh, awards that you've won. Well, I'm, I'm a sociologist, and um, my area of specialization is immigration. Um, and 
In that capacity, I collected many oral histories from my students of immigrants who actually had gone through Ellis Island. So I had this repertoire of stories and events um, that I would weave into my novel. And also, uh, back when Ellis Island was about to reopen in 1991, um, I did a documentary for the Ellis Island Foundation, and um, it was shown on PBS. And uh, I'm happy to report not only was well-received, but did garner some, some awards uh, uh, for uh, excellence in educational programming. So uh, that's part of the genesis of the book, too, because after completing that project, I was thinking about what could I do next with all this material I had. And I just decided that... Uh, as an academic, I had written my, my other kinds of books, textbooks and scholarly books, and I wanted to open up a new world of imagination for myself <laughs> as well as others. And so uh, that was where all the thinking first began for this novel. Ellis Island, I'm sure most of us can imagine the, the just this uh, center point, this small island where all these folks are coming from other nations to come to America, they're, they're uh, excited, they're anxious, they're even maybe a little fearful of the future, but they're still driven to come to America for whatever reason, their personal reasons. But unfortunately, uh, when you put that many people together and are down and out, bad things can happen. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, bad things in, in several ways. I mean, the bad thing, one bad thing that was certainly very severe for about 2% of the 12 million that came through Ellis Island was not being allowed in. Um, when you look at the pictures of immigrants arriving uh, at Ellis Island, you cannot find smiling faces. None of them are smiling. They're worried and they're concerned. And even some of the processing might have been whimsical in terms of their being accepted or rejected. So there's one bad thing for those who had the misfortune to be denied entry. The other bad thing is the, is, is the users, the, the exploiters, the, you know, the lesser angels among us, perhaps, um, who saw this as an opportunity to, to line their pockets, to uh, demand bribes in order to give the inspection uh, card approval to, to get into America. And um, these people, intimidated by others who are in uniform, because all the Ellis Island officials wore uniforms, including the doctors, um, were, were so desperate or sometimes just bamboozled uh, by these slick operators. Now, based on history, there was a riot there. I didn't know that. Yes, there was. Uh, it, it, it got so many people were being held um, on the island. They didn't have enough facilities to uh, house them all, and so they would uh, sleep overnight um, inside the registry hall itself, the big hall. And in the nicer weather, they, they had this outdoor uh, pen, as they called it, um, pen suggesting almost like keeping animals in and the immigrants themselves uh, felt that they had been treated like animals back in their homeland and now they were not only being treated as animals again in their opinion but uh, herded together in a pen they were frustrated, they were angry some of the guards were in, not only indifferent but abusive and insulting, uh, a lot of verbal abuse uh, going on and it just reached the breaking point and uh, this riot broke 
broke out. Um, and it was a pretty vicious one of several hundred uh, rioting, and the uh, uh, the guards and others ran from the the main building with clubs, and there was uh, you know there were there were bashed heads and and broken ribs, and uh, 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 quite a few people were hurt uh, in the process, and uh, uh, it was eventually quelled, and um, those folks who had rioted, who were slated for deported, were indeed deported, but uh, th- there were many injuries that you know were there among the recovering rather uh, among the personnel long after they had been uh, you know deported and so some people who worked at the island were actually on on sick leave for a little while till they were able to come back the commissioner at the time requested washington to uh, if he could station armed guards uh, armed police on the island that was denied but uh, the nearby uh, uh, marine base uh, was put on standby alert so that if it ever happened and again, they could quickly come over. Uh, fortunately, there were there were no further riots. So, Dr. Matt Stafford, this idealistic hospital surgeon, and he has this temporary assignment at Ellis Island. Uh, not only does he get entangled in this passionate love affair, but he witnesses a an assassination. That's right. It's President McKinley, and um, uh, he's. Uh, seeking a, a respite, a, a vacation, the uh, what we would today call World's Fair, the Pan American Exposition was uh, held up in Buffalo, New York, and there was this new marble that had appeared in Chicago that was now east called the Ferris Wheel, and uh, he just wanted to go there and, and, and see all that there was uh, to enjoy from this wonderful exposition. And um, that is, of course, where McKinley was assassinated. And so I took a little dramatic license in getting Matt right there at the scene so that I could describe accurately how the assassination took place um, and how people in the the hall at that time um, reacted to it. So many people don't know, again, as much about McKinley's assassination as, let's say, JFK's. Um, And so it was another opportunity for me to, um, uh, you know, enlighten the reader about the events that occurred around that assassination. And, of course, with his idealisms, uh, he uncovers corruption amongst the officials working there and probably... Putting his life at risk? Uh, there actually was an incident where um, at Ellis Island, a, a crazed woman um, stabbed a doctor in the back. And um, that, that actually occurred. And so, um, again, taking a little dramatic license with my character, um, I made Matt that person that he would be stabbed and uh, explained what that was all about. Um, he also does indeed um, find some funny business going on that he can't quite get a handle on, but he knows it's wrong. He's not sure how, but he knows it's wrong. And so he'll report that, and it, that will lead to the unmasking of one of the villains in the story. And I guess a perfect example of human behavior taking advantage of uh, those who are down and out, is that Assistant Commissioner Ed McSweeney? Well, Ed McSweeney, who is a real person, um, was suspected of being involved in a great many uh, underhanded uh, events and um, and lining his own pockets. As far as we can tell, uh, he never... Um, 
exploited the immigrants per se, but he was not above um, getting various kinds of payoffs from the steamship companies for looking the other way on, on, on some of their manifest sheets or from the getting a cut from the concessionaires. Uh, who sometimes wear uh, hats with American eagles on them to look official, or or, or sending um, the the immigrants to get a mandatory uh, a mandatory um, haircut when they didn't need one, and being overcharged for that and that sort of thing. Uh, but there were others much worse than Ed McSweeney, and um, um, I've got a villain in this novel who is modeled after a very very real person um, who eventually was caught, was unmasked, uh, was brought up on charges uh, and was fired from Ellis Island. There, there were a number of uh, lesser officials also uh, caught in uh, various probes about corruption, but there was this one key person who had a, a very important uh, administrative role um, at Ellis Island who, who was you know, very cruel and a, a strong exploiter, although he had the mask of being a good guy. How do you compare the immigrants of the 1890s to those immigrants uh, of today? That's a good question. Um, I would say they, they may be coming from different places, um, but the reality is it's they're exactly the same as past immigrants. One, they had they acted on courage. They were they were brave enough to leave everything they knew, family, friends, language, customs, their familiar world, to chase a dream, to pursue a better life, uh, to, to come here and get a better life, if not for themselves, then to work hard for their children so their children would not have to live as they had lived. That's the same driving force today as it was back then. And I think... Um, if I can get up on my soapbox for just a moment here, um, I, I think that that speaks to the strength of America. I, I think I think a nation's strength lies in its people, and what you have in our country is this wide array of diversity of people who were brave enough to, some, in the older days, endure the journey of. of you know, a week to two weeks and seasickness and all. Uh, the, the people today who uproot themselves and come here uh, to put down roots, uh, to make their mark, many of them then and now were unknown to the rest of us except to their family, friends, and neighbors. But they are the heart and soul of this country. They're the people who uh, made their, their contributions. Sure, they were, on the one hand, trying to improve their own lives, but in doing so, they also improved ours. A review that really, I think, summarizes all that you've been saying to us, says Vincent Perello's Guardians of the Gate weaves together the stories of immigrants, doctors, and government officials associated with Ellis Island. It's a lively and fun read, as well as a compelling historical novel that brings to life New York in the late 19th century. From another author who's written about Ellis Island. Yeah, I was gratified that uh, people who have the expertise and have done their own research uh, to write about the book uh, were so favorably disposed to mine. That's, that's really a good feeling. The title of the book, Guardians of the Gate, a novel, and the author is Vincent N. Perillo. Vince, tell us how to get your book. Uh, 
one can get the book from the publisher, our universe, uh, go online, um, go to Amazon, go to Barnes & Noble, uh, just type in the, in the little box there about the title, uh, the title of the book, and uh, you'll find it. Well, thank you, Vince. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. No, thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. How to invest, where to invest, where to save, where to get the right insurance, what to do about taxes. Should I relocate my business or ever purchase a property? That's where Go To My Radio Show comes in. Join host Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Choose the right financial professional and learn more about the products and services while learning the terminology and strategies used by these professionals. Go to my radio show is unbiased and Chris Holt, your host, will ask the hard questions and take calls to help you connect with the right professional who can help you better handle your financial and business choices. Go to my radio show is not a financial services company and does not offer any financial advice, but we will help you make the right choice when it comes to planning your financial future. And most of all, choosing the right program and the right professional for you. Go to my radio show with Chris Holt, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book Searching for Stanley, Unforgotten Hero of World War II. And the author is Kay Hughes, with contributions by Harold E. Dwyer. And Kay and Harold join us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Kay. Hello. And hello, Harold. Hello. Good to have you with us. Uh, Let me read a few things that have been written about your book, Searching for Stanley. It is a timeless, real-life tale that illustrates one family's dedication to finding their beloved Stanley, who, like thousands of other American patriots, made the ultimate sacrifice for his country. You also write that you were led on an unplanned, intriguing journey to understand the fate of First Lieutenant Stanley Dwyer, missing in action May 10th, 1944. Now, Harold, let's start with you. This is your brother. You probably can remember when you last saw him. Yes, I can. Mm-hmm. How old were you? Uh, I was probably uh, 18 at that time. 18, and he was going off to war. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you later joined him. You were in the military as well. 
Yes, uh, I was uh, just about a year behind him in training, although he was uh, eight years my senior in age. All right, and uh, he was part of the, was it officially called the Army Air Corps then, or was it the yes. Air Force? Army Air Corps. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you were also. Yes. And what kind of planes that was he flying or a part of? Well, uh, during the mission, we, we both were flying B-17s. B-17s. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. The great fleet of bombers that the America had at that time. Yep. Tell us a little bit about the motivation to do all this, to publish this book. The motivation to publish the book? Yes, and first of all, uh, Kay is, you're his niece, Stanley's niece. Right. And, of course, Harold, Harold's daughter. Yes, Harold is my father. Stanley was the uncle I never knew. And the motivation to write the book was to tell about our intriguing journey where we did discover Stanley understand his fate, and we discovered who Stanley, the person, was. And um, the reason I wrote the book was to tell his story, to pass on his story so others could read about this inspiring man and they can remember him. And in a sense, uh, the book to me, for me, is to honor and remember Stanley, who served and sacrificed. And it's, I tell people it is his legacy and it's a way that he is not forgotten. Well, let's go back. Let's go back to uh, the beginnings when you obviously, uh, since, since 1944, the family didn't know anything until when? And when was the first clue, the first tip about Stanley? Well, I always say the search began when my grandparents received the telegram telling them their son was missing in action. And that, that took 17 days. From May 10, they didn't receive the telegram to May 27th, informing them that Stanley was missing in action. But my grandparents um, searched, and uh, they exhausted all the sources available to them at their time, at that time. But... Um, you know, after a while, everything, all their leads and information, they didn't know where else to turn. And my grandparents, who I grew up around, never talked about Stanley. So I didn't really know him. I didn't know much about him. And one day, this uh, journey that we went on, the information, it was rekindled because my father asked one question and unknowingly, we were sent on, it was the beginning of an unplanned journey that took us on, uh, took us on a search that, uh, led us to many answers to understand the fate of my uncle. Harold, what was the question? It goes way back to sometime after they got the, uh, telegram from the War Department. My dad had written to the, uh, commander of the 463rd Bomb Group, uh, Colonel Schrute, to see if he could uh, get any information from him. And uh, the answer was negative, that he couldn't add anything to it other than the time of the shoot-down. So that's when, uh, and then Dad had written to... All of the crewmen in uh, my brother's crew and, and 
found out that uh, eventually there were five survivors out of the ten, <coughs> ten-man crew, and he wrote to all their parents, uh, hoping that the the uh, crewmen that were POWs in German uh, prison camps had written something about uh, the mission, but uh, to my knowledge, he never gained anything at all from that. So your special question sparked uh, some kind of uh, directive or some kind of path to follow? I remember the question. He came to my house with a missing air crew report that he had, that dad had sent for. And it, he, dad, it had come to dad on microfish. And when he copied it, the letters were kind of squished and you couldn't read anything very clearly. And one piece of information said place of impact. And dad came to me, um, in the spring of 1998 and he said, can we figure out the name of the crash site? Now, Dad never talked about his brother either, so, you know, that was that was just out of the blue. It was very unexpected, and from that, I realized eventually that my grandparents never knew the location of the crash site either. So, that was the beginning of our unexpected and unplanned journey. Now, what about these letters? How did you discover this uh, treasure? Well... There were let me cut in first a little okay. bit, Kay. Okay. Uh Stanley graduated from uh uh Kansas State College in Manhattan, Kansas. And uh he had a, a degree in journalism. He wanted to be a radio announcer. So uh he graduated in nineteen thirty nine and uh no jobs were available. So he and a friend hitchhiked to New Orleans to become uh, merchant marine men. And uh, he had told the folks that he would write regularly, and he had asked them to keep all of his letters so that uh, he could refer back to them if he ever got a job uh, as an announcer and so forth. So that's... That's kind of the history of how the letters came to be. So he traveled all over the world through the Merchant Marines. He was 120 degrees short of circling the world in 1941 after a two-year Merchant Marine stint. And you you uh, can learn a lot about Stanley from his letters. From his letters. Let me. You asked the question, um, how did we find these letters? Right. Well, I told you our journey was unplanned. We didn't plan it. And there were several coincidences that guided our search until we finally realized what was happening. And one of those, well, it's really not a coincidence. It's, it's, a, it's a result of an event that happened to my parents. Their house caught on fire in 1999. And in the basement, they had stored Stanley's trunk. And most of us know that when we store something in the basement, it's, nobody pays attention to it. And their house was not destroyed completely. And one day my dad asked me to go down in the basement and pull out all the trunks and take the contents out so they could dry before we repack them. The first trunk I opened was Stanley's trunk. And in it was memorabilia, his letters. It was the life of a man I didn't know. And that 
right there gave us the momentum to want to know who Stanley the man was, not just what was his fate on May 10, 1944, but who was this man. And it was inconceivable for me to close that trunk up and and not dig further and find out who he was, who this uncle that I didn't know was. So you learned about this man who uh, was deeply rooted in principles and values. Exactly. He was a um, all, the all-American Midwest boy who grew up to be a man of integrity. And through his letters, you hear his voice. And it is a first-person narrative with his letters that we are allowed to retrace his footsteps and go on all his adventures around the world. Like my father said, you know, he wrote to his parents and and he was a writer in his own right and he had this great wit and he we we are you're the reader becomes engrossed in what he's doing because you experience his adventures right alongside him. Harold, when you first uh, started reading those letters, uh, how did you feel? Well, it was kind of an eye-opener to me. They'd been laying down there for 40, 50 years, something like that, and I'd never paid any attention to them. But when when Kay got them out and and brought some of them to my attention, I I don't know, it just seemed like... uh, Naturally, she'd pick them up and read them, read them and uh, uh, appreciate the fact that uh, I could kind of look into his life a little bit. Kay, what was one of the more interesting things you learned about your uncle? Um, how he made opportunities for himself and how he made the most of opportunities. He he never complained in all those letters. He never complained. Whatever whatever path he was going down, you know, he he made the most of any of the opportunities. He went out to see the world when he had nine dollars and sixty cents in his pocket. Dad said he hitchhiked to New Orleans. That plan was part of a greater plan. He had nine dollars and sixty cents. So how does a man without any money see the world? Well, he signed up to be a merchant marine. That was part of a bigger plan, and the bigger plan was to get an education outside the classroom. And he wanted to gain insight and knowledge to become a better radio announcer. You know, a lot, a lot of people at age 23, 24 have that insight. He just he led a very inspiring life. And I hope when other people read about him, they are also inspired. Now, you talked about these coincidences, and you talked about being led on a journey. You feel it was more than a coincidence, though, right? More than a coincidence. I think God had a plan. Okay. We were part of it. I'd say it was divinely orchestrated. And you never quite knew what was going to happen next? At first, we didn't realize that, you know, several of these little quirky things that happened were 
probably part of a bigger plan, if you want to call it that. But eventually we caught on. And then so at that point, we became proactive and we pursued information and, you know, tried to piece more more of the mystery, if you want to call it mystery, together and understand Stanley's fate. So there, within the book, there's many stories within stories because of all these experiences that, that we had and the complete journey that we were that we were led on. I mean, doors continued to open. We couldn't have planned what happened. We couldn't have set out and planned what happened over those years from 1998 through probably for the next 10 years. The next 10 years. It fell into place. It just seemed like it was, the journey was meant to happen. So a decade of discovery. At least, for us anyway. But within that decade of discovery, well, when I find these letters in the trunk, it takes you back to the 1940s, and you understand my grandparents' relentless search for their missing son. And then you start to understand the grief and what not having closure means to a family. And then you see, you know, through their letters, you understand... Um, how, how they face life challenges and, and then, you know, it just, they, they kind of started the search for us and we pick up on it after we discover what they have done. Harold, give us a closing thought, just uh, something that you'd like to share with us in the uh, final moments of this interview. Oh, I guess it would be the fact that, uh, at, uh, 86 years old, Basically, I came to know the kind of man that my brother was, which I uh, didn't know before because uh, I was only about 13, 14 years old when he left home. And uh, uh, the ensuing years when we started this journey to... uh, to just kind of stand by in disbelief and wondering why it was happening. And uh, I appreciate Kay's effort for for making that possible. Kay, give us a closing thought. Well, I believe our story is the end of the physical part of our journey, but it's not the end of the memories. We want Stanley's legacy to be passed on. And like I said before, it's a way to honor and remember him for his service and sacrifice and in a large part, too, it's a way to honor and sacrifice and bring attention to all those veterans who have who have um, who are missing or who died in defense of our country. The title of the book, Searching for Stanley, Unforgotten Hero of World War II. The author is Kay Hughes, along with contributions by her father, Harold E. Dwyer. Kay, tell us how to get your book. Um, it's available at uh, online retailers, Amazon especially, Barnes & Noble, and iUniverse also has a bookstore section at their website. You can order it through there. And locally here we have some uh, bookstores and shops that are selling it, but for the most part for people uh, outside this area, it's available online. Harold, thanks for being with us. You bet. Glad to do it. And thank you, Kay. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. 
Radio with a cutting edge.